Kyoto World. I'm Kaz. I'm Liz. And I'm Lindy. And together we are Cult Chat. We're coming to you over the airways from little old Aotearoa, New Zealand, land of flightless birds, hobbits, marmite, and also some really wacky groups. And that's why we're here. On Cult Chat, we ask whether Kiwis know how to recognise a culty group and give tips on how to sniff out the telltale signs that a group is harmful. Join us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to survivors of New Zealand cults and interview experts in the field. Journey with us as we traverse the cultiverse. Cult Chat is available on various streaming platforms and social media. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com you may remember lisa kendall from our interview in april 2022 she runs the counter cult coalition from portland oregon and the organization's mission is to improve public policy to better protect and provide for children from cults. Lisa grew up in Sam Fife's The Move of God, and today devotes her time to helping other former cult members and advocating for the rights of children in high-demand organizations. We caught up for International Cult Awareness Month, which is August each year, to chat about developments in advocacy and media ethics around reporting on cultic groups, amongst other things. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we start, a content warning. This episode deals with child abuse, sexual abuse and trauma, and includes mentions of self-harm and suicide. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. Thanks so much for joining me today, Lisa. First up, August is International Cult Awareness Month and a big reason that we're speaking today. Most people would say they're already aware of cults, so what can you tell me about why this month is still necessary? Well, I you know, there aren't enough people who understand how widespread the phenomena is, how much harm is done, you know, how expensive it is to society and what we can do about it. You know, f- for me, it's the it's the new civil rights movement. So, you know, in the past, there have been struggles with every civil rights movement, women wanting economic freedom, the right to vote, and, you know, people of color. And, you know, right now, as people are becoming more aware of the harm done to people in cults and the lack of opportunity when they leave, especially for children, 
more and more people are interested in policy and in providing ways to, you know, help people navigate leaving. Yeah, I think some people sometimes don't understand that there are some real kind of human rights issues involved here, like they're consuming media that has a lot of the sensational cases, and obviously they find those really shocking, but there's so much kind of happening under the radar in much less sensational ways that is still really damaging to lives, right? It's funny you said that. I just came across letters written to politicians in Idaho from children who grew up in the followers of Christ in Idaho. We have a pretty large community, or I should say multiple communities, of the followers of Christ here in Oregon. And just reading these children's letters, you know, devastating, not being able to go to the doctor, not being allowed any kind of medical intervention or pain medication. And, you know, for people, they think, you know, oh, well, a kid isn't going to the doctor and not understanding how traumatic it is for them to watch their siblings die of very treatable illnesses. And I read these children talking about major injuries from car accidents, motorcycle accidents, and how they would um, give them a swig of Manischewitz wine, which was Christ's body, and some rancid olive oil that had been blessed and you know, sitting in the cupboard for years. This one jar they'd get out and rub on some infected wound <laughs> and say, you know, if, you're, if your faith in God is right, you'll be healed. And these children talking about how they still live with the, the, either the scars, the injuries, the damage to their bodies, or just the, you know, the internal wounds, PTSD. And that's just medical neglect. We're not talking about the more severe forms of abuse and neglect that typically get media attention. I always think of a young woman who I interviewed in Australia. She had seen her younger sibling get incredibly ill and was okay in the end. But then also when she reached an age where she could take care of her own health, she had missed out on all of these childhood vaccinations that she needed. And it was almost cost prohibitive to catch up on that schedule again for her. So these are the types of kind of ongoing effects that we don't necessarily think about that much. Oh, it's so true. The last time I talked to you, I had bronchitis. <laughs> and right now I have a bit of um, a respiratory infection. And a lot of that is from growing up cold. You know, people don't think about, oh, look at her, she's doing great. She has a master's degree or she travels, whatever it is, and not understanding. That's just one of the many health issues that I have related to my childhood. My mother smoking around me as a child you know, affected my lungs, not going to the doctor regularly. And I'm lucky, you know, due to herd immunity uh, where I live, I missed out on some vaccines, but I lucked out that other people got it, you know, which should be an argument for, for getting vaccines. Can you just tell me a little bit more about International Cult Awareness Month itself? Where did this come from? How long has it been going for? Tabitha Chapman got the idea, one of her many, many brilliant ideas. And this is the second year. Last year was a little bit more subdued because her mother died um, as she right at the you know end while she was planning it. But she's got a lot of wonderful projects and various weeks with different themes and activities. You know, so much of it was a way to get the public's attention. She sees this you know, growing over the next several years, and I should say we all do, um, but her vision is to be something like 
some of the other awareness campaigns where people wear a certain colored ribbon and where it kind of takes off and it takes on a life of its own. And uh, with so many people interested and excited and jumping in, um, I definitely see that happening. And for me, I think it also really gives the, the media a reason to focus on it, you know, a reason to do a story. I've got several podcasts lined up and in person discussion with the humanists of greater Portland and an exhibit at one of the libraries in Portland where there'll be an exhibit behind a glass case and then also an exhibit in the open room in the main, the main section of the library. And they've been able to order more cult memoir and other books about cultic studies and healing, things like that because of the exhibit. So it's like, it's just, for me, it's snowballing, you might say. And for those who aren't aware, maybe you could tell us a bit more about Tabitha Chapman and the work that she's doing. Well, she has quite the resume, so I'm going to just barely touch on it. Um, She's a PhD candidate, a therapist. She's first generation Nixium, and she is the founder of the Freedom Train Project and International Cult Awareness Month. She's also coming up with a program, I should say community-wide program, to establish guidelines for the media and interaction with former members. That's really important to me. Some of that is stemmed from conversations that we've had about podcasters who don't really understand how fragile some people are from cults and the importance of accuracy. I think for some people, if you're really excited about interviewing former members, it's easy to get caught up in that enthusiasm and not recognize, you know, how harmful, you know, just a a, a small unintentional error can be like not not vetting your interviewees and you know if someone is telling stories that are inaccurate especially if they're wildly inaccurate you know things that uh, make no sense at all and are you know then it can be an issue dealing with people uh, from those cults then who want to say well it must not be a cult because that person said we did this thing and we don't so it's one of the reasons I'm so pleased to do your podcast again I have found it to be so accurate and you're so sensitive and you put so much care into it, you know, as do other people like Jennifer French in California and Stephen Mather in the UK. And I think it's really important that we promote the podcasters who really do a good job. For people who are not familiar with the issues, you know, there are a lot of former members who really struggle with PTSD complex mental health issues and therefore suicide ideation. And, you know, there have been cases of people interviewing people when they've recently posted about their, their current issue with suicide ideation. And then someone from outside of our community with no experiences with cults is interviewing them about the most sensitive, painful time in their life when they're already so fragile and I, you know, this is a touchy thing to talk about. I know a lot of people aren't going to be happy to hear me say this, but there are a lot of people concerned about it because the whole point of media about former cult members is to be helpful, not to do more harm. 
That's absolutely right. And anyone who's working in this area as a, a reporter or in the media really should have un- some understanding of trauma-informed reporting and how to approach those subjects sensitively and also avoid questions that are going to re-traumatize someone. Ab- especially when it gets into trauma porn, if you're doing a three-part thing with someone and it's just every detail of one incident after another, you know, a half an hour on just the problems with one pregnancy in the cult, it's just too much. It's just like, we don't need to know every single detail of how much someone suffered. And then that takes up time that could be spent talking about prevention and how could we help and what organizations are working. There's just, there's so much good news to talk about out there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm really excited about these guidelines and I you know, can't wait to see what I can also learn from them too, because I think everyone can continue to improve in this space. And I wondered if you could also tell me a bit about the work of Misty Griffin. Oh, yes. She is amazing. She wrote Tears of the Silenced and she was a consultant on Sins of the Amish And she's got one of the best projects I've ever heard of. Um, And I don't mean that in any way to diminish talking about other ones, especially like Tabitha Chapman is just, oh my God, she's a monster in this space. She gets so much done and she does it so well. But I also want to say Misty Griffin's idea of going to legislators and specifically saying we need children's rights for children from extreme religious communities You know, people have talked about that for decades, and it's so hard to make traction because, for one thing, children in cults, they don't have any money, they don't vote, we don't see them. It's really easy to pretend like it's a small number when it's probably hundreds of thousands. The people who, by the way, this is a a slight digression, but some people have been able to put numbers to it, like Hope Bastine in England. Hope is just finishing up her memoir, She was the only person to hold her, one of her rapists accountable from when she was a child who is currently in prison in Scotland, I believe. Anyway, Hope has said, you know, we go back and rescue children from abusive situations and you go back and you interview the family. Or if if someone is kidnapped, you know, like the women who've been freed who are held captive, you go back and you rescue the other women. Anyway, I can't remember why I was talking about hope now. I think it was related to the work of Misty Griffin, but the child rights legislation approach. So with Misty, being able to hold a press release, do a petition, and actually have people take seriously protecting the rights of children in cults. Oh, I mean, that's why I brought up hope. She's one of the people who has been able to put some numbers to it. And if you look at one cult and you know there were 10,000 adults and that they had more children than adults, then you can extrapolate. And we know there are thousands of cults in the United States alone. We know numbers for many cults like the Children of God. The Move of God I was in was active in 30 countries when I was growing up. Now it's active in 15. So I have, you know, I can tell you there were thousands of children in the Move of God over just 10 years, not to mention 50. And I think it's hard for people to grasp the numbers. The exclusive brethren, sometimes called the Plymouth brethren, I believe, oh, I can't remember the numbers for them. I know the Jehovah's Witnesses, 50,000 
people right now is what I've been told. You know, not the numbers themselves don't match. People can go and check these. I'd love for someone to help us collate some of the numbers. But, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of children, many of them suffering and dying if they don't die in the cult as a child, leaving. And there's a very high incidence of drug addiction, homelessness, suicide. Very easy to prove that it is far more common for children from cults, statistically speaking, than the general population. Yes, indeed. And I think some of the issues around the more sensationalist coverage that happens in the media is that the general public tends to think that this is uh, a much more unusual circumstance than it actually is. So they're not getting those stories that are a bit more under the radar and actually a lot more common, like the numbers that you're speaking about. And so you also recently attended the International Cultic Studies Association's annual conference, which I really hope to make one day. I wondered if you could share some of what you took from sessions that you found interesting this year. It's interesting. There, um, you know, there, of course, there are some tears, people dealing with stressful situations and issues and memories, but it's actually a lot of fun. There's so much laughter and the connection, being in a room with people who understand the issues, whether they've experienced life in a cult or not, there's something surprisingly freeing about it and a lot of um, a strong sense of community and people looking to collaborate and support each other. So just the, and a lot of work got done in the restaurants and bars and hotel rooms after, you know, in the evenings. But one of the biggest takeaways for me was just the latest science, the latest that we know about the law, how people can hold their perpetrators accountable using the current laws and new laws. There was just a lot of really terrific information. Oh, that sounds so fantastic. And hopefully something I can share with the uh, Let's Talk About Sex audience in the future as well. There were a couple of sessions you mentioned to me that sounded fascinating. One of them was about the neuroscience around real sensations that get attributed to mysticism. There were a couple of those done by uh, mostly Yuval Lohr. And one of the interesting things he told me is that, you know, there is now this understanding about how a certain type of epilepsy uh, one in which you do not have grand mal seizures, affects the brain in such a way that people will believe they're hearing from God or have these grandiose ideas and believe them. Charles Manson being one of them. Sam Fife, who was the leader of the cult, the move of God that I grew up in. I, Sam Fife was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I always assumed that's what he had. But that was a common misdiagnosis for people with this form of epilepsy. And it was a common misdiagnosis for people from cults. I mean, it's so fascinating. Also, you know, just when people, why people would think they're having out-of-body experiences, afterlife experiences, mysticism, how, you know, the scientists have isolated the part of the brain that is responsible for that. So people would experience that due to trauma, like a serious head injury, doing drugs, or uh, electrical stimulation in, uh, in, a sci- you know, in a lab or a hospital by a scientist. 
So, so interesting because it's just one of the biggest questions I always have is about how these cult leaders, like how much they really believe in what they're teaching or preaching and how much of it is kind of just power and control. So, you know, in some cases it's delusion and then in some cases it's some sort of huge narcissism. It's fascinating. It's shocking to me to look back on, you know, the what we're in our cult called the father ministry, the leaders who got to travel around and stay in hotels and, you know, everything was paid for. They didn't have to work because, of course, they were father ministry, had to preach or whatever. So they, the time they put in was negligible. I do believe a lot of the people took advantage of this situation. But from having met Sam Fife myself, I know he believed it. And the explanations that we got at the conference really explained that. Yeah, amazing. Because I think sometimes that the awe and the mysticism, it's like very difficult to explain away how someone could have these kinds of experiences and it not be indicative of a higher power or that they have access to some kind of, I don't know, magical secret or whatever that feeds into the cult belief system. Actually, David Koresh was one of the examples provided. So it looks like, at least in the beginning, he definitely believed that. Another interesting thing that I learned at the conference is that people are more likely to believe something they hear than they see. So if somebody has hallucinations, they know it's not real. Whereas if they hear a voice in their head, they will often attribute it to something like a god. And that that neurological issues related to where people hear voices are the cause for a lot of this phenomenon. And I highly recommend looking into some of the latest science. You mentioned the conference. One of the amazing things about it was bringing people together who have had these experiences and how important that can be. And the experiences of former cult members have a lot in common. So support groups after leaving can be such an invaluable resource. But there are a few areas where people's experience can really differ. And one of those is whether they chose to join later in life or grew up in a cult. Can you talk to me a little about the different terms people use here and how you think we go about making sure everyone is properly heard in these spaces? That is a tough question, and I certainly don't have any answers for that. I know that we use the term first-generation adult for adults who joined a cult, who were coerced into joining, second-generation for children who grew up in a cult and multi-generation if you, you know, if your grandparents, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, whatever, uh, were also in the cult. People use the term born in a lot, raised in, you know, I think it's really important that we do have different terms because we've come to understand that people have different issues. I often say SGA, second generation adult, Broadly, meaning even children, you know, I'll say the term SGA, someone is 16, they're obviously not an adult. Um, I also use that term sometimes. There are times where we use the terms and, and I'll use it also for people who were born in. I think that there is some division, though. I think sometimes people get, I know that some SGAs, for example, people like me, have a lot of anger toward first gens. And so there will be, oh, I think some reluctance to uh, be willing to listen to what a first gen might have to say. 
I know that some born-ins feel like they're not understood, that their issues are different than other SGAs or than other former members as a whole. And I find that it differs so much by the person and by demographic. So for instance, Tabitha Chapman is a first gen and she's so sensitive to the issues of SGAs that I sometimes lump her in with us and forget that she's an FGA. I will say that sometimes first gens are, I don't know, not as sensitive to uh, people who've been raised in cults as we would like. That's how most of us feel about it. And therapists, including first gens like Tabitha Chapman, have said that they think that a part of it is people like continuing the trauma of the cult. So for some people who joined a cult and they were leaders, maybe they were enforcers, working with them in the counter cult space can be complicated because they'll tend to step up, be dismissive, sometimes even exploit other like SGAs or plagiarize their work even. Of course, that is the exception. There are so many wonderful people working in our community. And speaking of like demographics, Debbie Shriver, the president of the International Cultic Studies Association, she's never experienced life in a cult. And she's very sensitive to the various experiences people have, whether they're first gen, second gen, born in. And I also would say that I think she's especially open to understanding and supportive of people who were raised in cults. I think that's, yeah, such a, an important conversation to keep evolving those understandings. And even then, I just noticed the way that you said we're coerced into joining a cult, which is, you know, there's the sensitivities around this language. Obviously, nobody does join a cult. They're seduced into joining, they're coerced into joining, but it's not a cult that, or they don't realize it's a cult until way, way later on. Oh, yeah. My mother joined a community, a community of people who gave her life meaning. She didn't join a cult. And then all of a sudden, you know, we found ourselves in a cult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Coming back to Debbie Shriver, she wrote the book uh, Whispering in the Daylight, which is incredibly well-researched. I can't think of a book in the field of cultic studies or not that is so well-researched. I highly recommend it. And that was how she came to understand the issues of uh, children from cults and then ended up becoming an advocate and event, you know, board member and then the president of ICSA. And it all started from someone asking her to write a book about the Tony Alamo group. And boy, I'll tell you, talk about a crazy, bizarre organization. It, if Even if you're just looking for sensationalism, pick that book up and you'll learn a lot about SGAs while just getting to read a lot of creepy stuff. I haven't read that one, so I'm going to have to look it up myself add it to the bookshelf. A subject that I dwell on quite a lot when I'm looking at cults is patriarchy, which of course outside of cults is a, a big issue as well, but also a huge part of many cult experiences. It's interesting to me that I think almost every name that you have mentioned so far has been that of a woman. So it seems like there's a lot of women in the advocacy space here. And I, I just wondered if you could share some of your thoughts about patriarchy and cults. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, growing up, and I didn't realize how patriarchal the move of God was. And I mean, years later, even talking about it, thinking that we had more equality or parity than we did. I, one issue in the counter cult space is that 
a lot of men who were raised in cults are used to that power, are used to being referred to, having their opinion held uh, more highly maybe than other people without recognizing. I mean, just basic patriarchy. I'm not doing a good job of explaining it, but you know what I mean. And we see that then in when we're trying to work together. And it's an issue that women in our world talk about a lot. I noticed there was a meeting I had recently with some people, some with a group of people online about the countercult space. And I asked this man what he thought about patriarchy. And he said, it makes me uncomfortable when it comes up. And uh, it was so interesting that he said that because men almost never talk about it in our space, whereas women do a lot. And so I'm saying it's a touchy issue. I feel a little uncomfortable addressing it as a woman. But, you know, some issues are, especially men who are used to having the stage, you know, you try to talk to them about the new things that people are doing and they just want to talk about their glory days and things they did in the past. And it makes it hard to then get something done to move a project forward or just to feel heard. I We've already touched on this quite a bit, but we've spoken about the sensationalist media coverage about many cults and, you know, it's kind of understandable things that make the headlines are when something goes seriously wrong. But there are other aspects of media ethics when reporting on cults, some of which we've spoken about. Were there any other things that you think anyone looking into this subject from a reporting perspective should be keeping in mind? Well, I've been involved in a few meetings with people where we've talked about this. And I, so I would just share with you what a wide range of people say. And although I agree with almost everything, you know, we all, we all have our differences, but a major issue for people is making money off of people's stories without compensating them and or giving them a platform or being sensitive to their vulnerabilities. Others are the type of advertising some podcasters have. You know, if it's an organization that is known to be unethical, if you're promoting food that's really unhealthy to vulnerable people, by advertising it on that platform, there, there is a sense for most of us of endorsing it or validating it. Um, that's been an issue I've heard brought up a few times and questions asked. Another one is changing the titles of people's articles when you publish without asking, publishing on a podcast somewhere, something that someone has asked, you know, requested not to be. There's just been so many issues that have come up. I don't know if I could adequately answer the question in a short period of time. I think I think we can both look forward to the uh, forthcoming guidelines that will really dig into some of that stuff and, and hopefully make a big difference. I think it's late enough in the game to talk about Tabitha's project. We're hoping, some of us are hoping that Tabitha will have the seal of approval she has planned for podcasts and other forms of media to help people sort out who abides by those guidelines, which would basically be basic codes of conduct. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. You know, we all, gosh, we all make so many mistakes. But I think that if someone has a pattern of making a lot of mistakes in a lot of arenas, whereas most other people, you know, it's just the the one-off here and there, 
Um, I think that's one of the things that we're looking at curbing. So what developments are you currently seeing in terms of the professionalization of organizations in the counter-cult arena and the changing expectations of people working in this field? That is such a great question. At the conference in Kentucky, June and July, uh, Debbie Shriver explained to the audience in a question and answer session that they had updated the bookkeeping and some other practices, their fundraising system. And, you know, that that right there is terrific. I know that they've redone their bylaws in the last year or so, updating their website, also looking at, at more of an expectation of board members who have had experience in cults and having there be more diversity, which is amazing. i I feel like Tabitha Chapman has brought a lot of professionalism to the arena. There's so many wonderful people who have written great books and been involved in projects. Celeste Jones, Hope Bastine. There's just, there's so many. And, you know, it is interesting that a lot of, or most, I would say a a large percentage of the people working in this space right now who are not being paid are women. So most of the people working for free, like me and Tabitha and so many other people, Misty, are not paid. And that, you know, that that's an interesting thing right there, carrying all on traditions of men working in higher paying positions, but also paid positions. You know what I'm saying? Looking at effectiveness, not just outputs, but outcomes. At least that's what I'm seeing. That's something that I've always looked at in any of my projects. You know, what can I say I've actually achieved in terms of real change rather than just units of work done? And also more collaboration across organizations. I know several organizations are looking to expand their collaborations. Right now, Countercult Coalition, the organization I founded, is collaborating with the Oregon Children's Institute. And they've been phenomenal at helping us figure out how we could get government funds to better support and protect children in and from cults. And also greater expectations for the board and bylaws and best practices, which right now more and more nonprofits in our arena are looking at making sure the board understands best practices and abides by them. That all sounds so positive and like some really exciting work is happening there. A lot of unpaid emotional labor by women, which we hear in many fields, but yeah, it sounds like an exciting time. And what are the current demands for change that the countercult community is focused on and in your work with the countercult coalition? There are some organizations in our arena who that have not been as well managed as they should have. And because of it, they either haven't been effective, they haven't been efficient, and haven't been able to raise money, haven't had sensitive board members or committed board members. And so, and and people, you know, without guardrails and better guidelines who've actually done real harm to former members, especially SGAs, former child members. I do think it's something that, you know, we need to understand partly to prevent you know, in the future, and also to be sensitive to people who report having harm done by various leaders in the counter-cult community. 
I know that a lot of really wise, smart, effective leaders have left because of harsh treatment by board members in some of the larger or or more established organizations whose mission is to support former members. And there have been some cases of, I would say, exploitation, taking the credit for other people's work, plagiarism, also just plain divisiveness. I know there are some people who, I guess, behaved in a way that you would expect to see cult leaders behave in and being divisive. And I know that it's something that that other people have wanted to address, not me. There are people who want to be able to bring peace to some of the fractured areas of our community. I see that as a, a daunting prospect, but it would be wonderful to see there be a little bit more unity. And, you know, I think um, some people have gone a long way toward fixing that. Debbie Shriver, for one. So I see a real move there. And part of it, to be really frank, is that we're not putting up with it anymore. I didn't realize how many other people had experiences like me. When I started hearing about it, I started speaking up more. And then other people started speaking up more. And because of it, there were major changes, you know, people who were demoted, people who lost their positions and also new expectations, people being told this is not okay. Whereas for 20 or 30 years, very little was said about it. That sounds hugely positive because, I mean, obviously when we're looking at a lot of cults, that's the thing that happens. They don't change from within. They don't listen to the criticisms. They don't try and make things better. And so hearing that there is actually change happening is just a sign of like a, an organisation that hopefully is is really healthy. I see the future so much better for people finding their way to the counter-cult community. I think the ICSA conferences have always taken into account the experience of someone coming to the conference for the first time and people who, you know, are there every year. There's always someone you can talk to if you're in crisis. You know, I feel like there's always been some of those measures that you wouldn't find in mainstream society at maybe a a somewhat typical event, but even more so now and going forward, I find that. And I find people very receptive. I'm amazed how receptive people are saying, you know, that maybe there are board members who are aloof or um, not helpful, won't answer questions. I know I've talked to a few people who've had concerns in the last six months, and I feel like um, everyone I know of has felt heard. So we've come to the end of my questions. Lisa, this has just been such an interesting conversation and I really appreciate you sharing all of your in-depth knowledge with the audience. Was there anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners today before we finish up? There are some things that I would like to see discussed with more nuance. One is that people say anybody could join a cult If you don't think you could join a cult, then you probably will, things like that. And I'm glad to see more people talking about what we know about people when they do join. People tend to be vulnerable without a good safety net. You know, like in the case of my mother, a single mother without 
you know, good quality support at home without um, a family structure, without a support system, you know, living in poverty. And, you know, when I look back on the people in the move of God, where I grew up here in the, what was called the Portland body, each city group was a, like a body of Christ. So in the Portland body, almost all of the people were single women with children living in poverty. The married couples tended to be very young, not really having a lot of direction in their life. There was one couple who were really well established and doing great. He was the manager at a Denny's in um, a, a working class neighborhood. And, you know, it was a married couple with two small children. And, you know, that was like the pinnacle in the world where I grew up. And I think that, and, and I've seen since then, talking to people from a variety of groups, that so many of them have come from abusive homes where there's violence in the home, domestic violence, or really punitive discipline. And so I, we do know, and there are studies that show that some people are more likely to join a cult and or stay in one. I know in the move, there were a lot of people who left over the requirement to beat babies and to hold their nose until they passed out. And a lot of women left, and I talked to them years later without ever even knowing who they were, for a court case where I was interviewing people. And it opened my eyes to all of the people who left over the child abuse. And then the people who stayed tended to come from families where that was more normalized or they were more vulnerable and had fewer opportunities to leave. So I just think that's one example of the more nuanced discussions we need to have about things and not be afraid. You know, in, in that case, maybe part of it is stigma that people are afraid of more accurate information. Yeah, and I think it also really points to something practical that we can do, which is provide better paths out for people so that for those who don't have a safety net on the outside, there is somewhere for them to turn so they don't get so trapped when they're starting to question. Right now, one of the projects that Countercourt Coalition is sponsoring is a the ability for SGA, someone who has grown up in a cult, no matter where they are, if they're living in Oregon today, to be able to get expanded medical care, dental care, mental health care, cult-informed suicide prevention, transition services, and an ombudsman at the Oregon Department of Human Services to guide them through the process and explain those services and services in the broader community. So for instance, they would get expanded dental care through the age of 24, which would include root canals, crown, root canals, crowns, and optical care and glasses through the age of 24. You know, if they come to the Department of Human Services or we are, you know, they come to us and we're able to uh, route them there, whether they're 21, 22, as long as they were in a cult before the age of 18, they would qualify to access funds available for foster care children aging out of the system for transition services. And, you know, this is what we're working on. It's not, it's not, we don't have this set up yet, but that is the plan. And I'm working with Dana Hepper at the Oregon Children's Institute and our state representative, Lisa Reynolds, has agreed to sponsor a bill to get us funding for a committee to therefore um, address this and 
The, these are the basic guidelines we're looking at right now for the project. Tabitha Chapman has also jumped on and helped with this, which has been great. And then, of course, the plan is to export it outside of the state of Oregon. That just sounds so fantastic and just exactly one of the key things that's needed in this space. It's like, it's amazing that you're making progress in these areas. I'm really excited to hear it. There's so much more being done right now around the country and around the world. I think you might want to have an episode in the future where you interview people just about the broader information about all the great things that are happening. I absolutely would love to do that because I think the awareness raising is a huge key part of what's going on and we're speaking for Cult Awareness Month now, but it's the the progress that can be made on actually making real change and helping those who are exiting and ideally stopping a lot of the harm that is ongoing. This is the stuff that we really should be focusing on too. And I want to say, I know some of this sounds really difficult to hear, but these are real people living with this. And you have children who grow up in cults and then they have to live with the consequences of raising their own children in cults. And, you know, it's just so much trauma and so much unmet potential. People who are not able to even figure out who they would have been otherwise. And so I appreciate it when people are willing to hear the the tough reality of life for people in cults and the aftermath. That's, yeah, so true. And something I think about a lot as well is the the human potential of the people who are still enmeshed in these groups. And, you know, you've got so many wonderful, dedicated people who are really willing to give of themselves to the wrong organisation and, and what wonderful things they could be doing in society if they were putting that energy towards something else. Well, thank you so much, Lisa Kendall, for speaking with me again today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. You are terrific. We're lucky to have you in this space. that Lisa mentioned in our interview about inappropriate ads being played on certain podcasts. Aside from opting out of certain categories, I don't actually have any oversight of which ads are placed on the show, and I don't often hear them. If you ever hear of anything that you think perhaps shouldn't be on there, please send me a note so that I'm aware of it and can take action if necessary. Thanks so much for listening, and you can find a link to the Countercult Coalition's work in the show notes. You can access early and ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also grab a copy of my book, Do As I Say. That link's in the show notes too. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support with or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. 
Let's Talk About Sex is produced and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Editing and mixing by Matt Brazel, and with music by Joe Gould, whose fabulous soundtrack album Nobody Joins a Cult is out now. Thanks again to Lisa Kendall for sharing her work and her knowledge with me. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Kia world. I'm Kaz. I'm Liz. And I'm Lindy. And together we are Cult Chat. We're coming to you over the airways from little old Aotearoa, New Zealand, land of flightless birds, hobbits, marmite, and also some really wacky groups. And that's why we're here. On Cult Chat, we ask whether Kiwis know how to recognise a culty group and give tips on how to sniff out the telltale signs that a group is harmful. Join us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to survivors of New Zealand cults and interview experts in the field. Journey with us as we traverse the cultiverse. Cult Chat is available on various streaming platforms and social media.